Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 71, IBM versus the monorail. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Defile what we defile. Eat who we eat. Yeah, it's that that episode. Yeah, we got there. Today we're going to be talking about Season 4, Episode 12, Marge vs. the Monorail, which first aired on January the 14th, 1993. It was the first episode of 93, and there was a gap of nearly a month from the last episode. And I'm going to be talking about IBM, because on January the 19th, 1993, five days after Marge vs. the Monorail first aired, the tech giant posted an $8.1 billion loss, the biggest annual loss in US corporate history. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can't tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus, because (laughs) that's a hive of scum and villainy these days. Mm -hmm. But do please send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. I have a little uh, announcement to make in the uh, the meantime, you know, those few days since we last did an episode, uh, <laughs> for which, apologies, things have been mad, uh, I was back on Looks Unfamiliar with Tim Worthington. So keep an eye out for that. Yes, and I should give a bit of a health update, because the reason we didn't record for a while is because I thought I had a stroke. Turns out I didn't. I have a little hole in my head called a cavernoma, Sounds really scary, but apparently one in 600 people have them and they never cause any problems. Not entirely sure how they know that, but anyway. And about two years ago, the one I had, which I might have had for decades, no one knows, but it started to bleed. And that extra pressure in my head squashed the bit of my brain that dealt with how the brain interacts with the outside world. So that's why my speech was all weird, my coordination was all over the place. Uh, But... Like pretty much any wound would heal normally, the cavernoma did, and all the blood got reabsorbed, and I just got better over time. So, good thing I didn't have the stroke, because you never 100% recover from a stroke, but from what I had, you do. So, yes, I'm back, and we're into 1993, and I'll be honest, I'm kind of dreading it history-wise, because 1993, the world just really stopped being interesting. The Cold War was over, everything calmed down a bit, and people went, ah, let's just watch The Simpsons. The Simpsons is good now. It has left us with a bit of dilemma about future episodes, because this is the point where The Simpsons really starts to pick up speed and become the fantastic show that it's remembered for during what uh, what is referred to as the Golden Age. Um, So I don't think we'll be making any changes anytime soon, uh, but if we do, you can say you were fairly warned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is one major event of 1993, which I'm not going to talk about, which is which is the Siege of Waco. And I'm not going to talk about it because loads of people have covered it and it involves dozens of children burning to death. So it's not a very pleasant thing to cover. And with dozens of children burning to death fresh to mind, <laughs> Sorry let's, <about> that. <laughs> let's get into the podcast. But Gareth... I hear you cry above the sound of burning... No, no, I'm not going to carry on with that. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that week? Well, it's still Whitney. 
And it's Snap at number two with one of their less remembered offerings. I was really struggling to find things I could say about them last time. But I think number three is significant enough that people won't mind me skipping on. It's Take That with Could It Be Magic. Oh, now is that them making their first chart appearance? It isn't. We've, we've discussed them on this before, but it's certainly their most high profile to date. Okay. Before we get started, sharp-eyed listeners may have noticed, as I did only after wasting apparently half the bloody episode last time wittering on about Slam Jam, that it's not on Spotify. Originally I added Could It Be Magic to our playlist, because I forgot I was talking about it in this episode. I've now replaced it with Out of Space by The Prodigy, which was at number 11 that week, and I'm sure we can all have a bit of fun bopping about to that. Oh yeah. So last time we visited with Take That, it was eight episodes back, and they were just starting to gather momentum with A Million Love Songs, an original of theirs. This is not an original. It was co-written by Adrienne Anderson, and her perhaps better-known regular writing partner, one... Barry Manilow or something, (laughs) uh, who released it originally in 1971 with a session group called Featherbed. There's something so 1971 about that. (laughs) Uh, He again uh, recorded it as a slower tempo solo outing in 1975, shortened to four minutes from its original seven, with some pretty brutal and thankful editing. Donna Summer did a disco version in 1976, and that is the version on which this is based. Peaking at number three, this is their highest charting single to date. We are two singles from their first number one, and it's fair to say they go on an absolute spree after that, so no doubt we'll be covering at least some of it. Worth noting that the lead singer on this one is one Robbie Williams, who would later leave the band and ruin everything, game over, band over, and that it is therefore now sung by Gary Barlow on tour. Although in 2006 it was apparently sung by a hologram of Robbie Williams, so that's a bit of a turn up for the books. It was the last single released from the album Take That and Party and was not included on the cassette version of the album, which is a little unfair if you ask me, as someone who was a remarkably late adopter of compact discs. And finally, it was featured in 1992's Only Fools and Horses Christmas Special, which probably accounted for a fair few sales. Returning to the episode, the US viewership was a Nielsen of 13.7. It was 30th for the week overall, but it was the most watched program on Fox. The production number is 9F10, and the credited writer is Conan O'Brien, who we discussed in episode 67, Women Priests on the Block. The chalkboard gag is, I will not eat things for money. And the couch gag, somewhat appropriately for a, an episode that explores Springfield and its other residents to uh, probably a depth that the show hadn't done up until this point, a ton of other Springfield residents rush in and block the family's view of the TV. But what actually happens? Well, the Simpsons are going to reference one of their own biggest inspirations as Homer escapes the power plant to a parody of the Flintstones opening titles before running afoul of a chestnut tree. It's completely unimportant to the rest of the episode. <laughs> as, we, funny. as we cut straight back to the power plant where Lenny and Carl are welding shut barrels of toxic waste without much protective equipment. Which Smithers and Burns, without any protective equipment, can then wheel out to the park, as their playground dumping site is producing too many bald children. (laughs) The tentacled trees and laser squirrels have apparently drawn the ire of the Environmental Protection Agency, though, and Agent Malone arrives to take Burns downtown, where he has fined $3 million, which he can easily afford. (laughs) A town meeting is held to decide how to spend the money. Lisa daydreams of a fully funded elementary school, 
with virtual reality lessons led by Genghis Khan himself, whilst Bart imagines destroying the school with giant mechanical ants. I'd have been happy with some of those guitars that are like double guitars myself. As Snake loots the town and the Pledge of Allegiance is skipped, the meeting gets off to a fractious start. Several suggestions are made for the disbursement of the two million dollars, with Mayor Quimby clearly having creamed a million off the top for himself. Maud Flanders suggests extinguishing the blaze on the east side of town. Possibly the tyre fire? Mm. Whilst Mr. Snrub, who comes from someplace far away, yes, that'll do, <laughs> wants to give the money to the local nuclear power plant, which is seconded by Smithers, though the two are forced to escape by grappling gun when an angry mob forms. Arpu suggests more police officers given his eight separate shootings that year, and Marge wants to get Main Street repaired to avoid any more popcorn truck disasters. An idea that is accidentally seconded by Abe when the town can't listen to him for long enough for him to get his actual idea out. But before it can be ratified, a smooth-talking hustler by the name of Lyle Lanley presents an idea in song form. And as time goes on, we'll come to find that Springfield will accept any idea, including a house of burlesque, if it's presented in song form. That idea? Monorail. What did I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. Ladley continues to charm the townsfolk, including stopping in at Miss Hoover's class and flattering Lisa, who would usually be the naysayer in this kind of story. The only question he can't answer is whether Superman could outrun the Flash. <laughs> we then see a trailer for Truckosaurus the movie, starring Marlon Brando's John Truckosaurus, before Homer sees an advert for a monorail conductor's job that really speaks to him, as long as whiskey counts as beer. And since it's his lifelong dream and he's not an investigative journalist, he enrolls at the Ladley Institute of Monorail Conducting. Tom, perhaps your greatest test lies ahead. For your quiz this time, we're going to use what little material we may sneak out of the Institute to see if you could make it as a monorail conductor. Okay. You must answer me these questions three. Question the first. What does mono mean? <laughs> well, mono means one. Okay, okay. What does rail mean? <laughs> and rail means rail. Excellent. And <laughs> Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> and finally, true or false, you can get mono from riding the monorail. <sighs> false. Maybe it's true. It, it's false. Hey. I think you should get an extra point for playing the angles there. But, um, <laughs> but yes, uh, even Homer manages to pass that somehow. And his educational aptitude is starting to impress Bart, although he draws the line at renaming himself Homer Jr., <laughs> even if the kids could call him Hoju. Bart starts to doubt the safety of the monorail, particularly with Homer at the dead man's handle, despite the intensive three-week course. The possums in the fire extinguisher cupboard are the last straw. And Marge visits Ladley's office, where he has stupidly left a notepad full of pictures of a crashing monorail and himself surrounded by bags of money. Remembering that Ladley mentioned three other places that brought monorails from him, she heads for North Haverbrook and finds a dilapidated community that denies there was ever a monorail, before meeting Sebastian Cobb, a North Haverbrookian who was contracted to build their monorail. He shows her the wreckage and tells her that corners were cut in all places, including having Gallagher as the celebrity on the maiden voyage. He still thinks they should be fine if they have a damn good conductor, but... Well... Marge and Sebastian race back to Springfield, but the maiden voyage has already begun. 
Ladley has clearly learned from the Gallagher incident. We get recently outed leading man Dash Calhoun, plus Krusty the Clown, someone who is clearly meant to be Luke Perry, Lurley Lumpkin, fresh from sleeping in a ditch last night, which apparently gave a Doris Grouse voice, mm-hmm. and as Grand Marshal, none other than Leonard Nimoy, who Mayor Quimby doesn't recognise. All the pageantry gives Ladley enough time to dash to the airport as the first ride starts with many technical failures, putting unprecedented strain on a seldom break branded pike. The contingent from North Haven regarded in time to stop it, thanks to Sebastian inexplicably stopping for a haircut. <laughs> also, randomly, Bart is riding up front with Homer, so there's not a brain cell to be found in the driver's cab. As Nimoy bores the passengers, disaster strikes and the throttle sticks open, with the brakes already out. The train is stuck at 180 miles per hour, as Quimby and Chief Wiggum have an argument over who's calling the shots, which ends in a trip to the library at Town Hall, which also solves nothing. We discover the monorail runs on solar power just as the cosmic ballet serves up a well-timed solar eclipse, briefly solving the problem. The solar eclipse then stops, which makes the problem occur again. (laughs) Meanwhile, Ladley's non-stop flight to Tahiti takes an unscheduled layover in North Haverbrook, where an unusually keen-sighted angry mob spots him in seat 3F and presumably beats him to death. (laughs) A scientist steps in at Springfield's site. No, not Batman. It's actually Sebastian, to suggest that Homer deploys an anchor, which after considering using Bart, he's able to improvise with the M from the monorail side and the lasso from a nearby cowboy, which digs into a giant donut side and halts the runaway train, but not before wrecking Main Street, separating Siamese twins and destroying the birthplace of Jebediah Springfield. Nimoy beams out, his work done, and he did do work, as we spotted, and Springfield never wasted its money on follies again, except for the popsicle stick skyscraper, the 50-foot magnifying glass, and the escalator to nowhere. What an episode. Great writing, snappy jokes all the way through, mystery and peril, a memorable song and dance number, and great turns by both a much-missed guest voice and a celebrity who isn't afraid to poke fun at themselves. Absolutely top tier, definitely top five, almost certainly top three. Tom, what did you think? Well, I'd say it's the first one that's flawless, isn't it? There's not a, there's not a bad thing about it. And it's been so influential because I remember when I was at university in York back in the early noughties, there's one college which is quite a long way from the rest of them and it's Halifax College. And apparently during a meeting, someone suggested building a monorail from Halifax to the, uh, to the main campus and they all started singing the monorail song. <laughs> I hope that's true. Uh, so, character debuts and progress. We actually we actually have some this time. Um, Lyle Landley. Played by Phil Hartman to the surprise of no one. <laughs> Simpsons writer Mike Reese said this was because he was always pretending to be a glad-handing salesman, with Jeff Martin adding, somewhat poignantly, he was very good at portraying slick, empty people. I think he brought a lot of joy to it. Hmm. Anyone who's seen his portrayal of Bill McNeil in news radio will most probably agree with that assessment. Ladley is a blatant take on the character of Harold Hill from the hit stage show and 1962 film The Music Man, with the key difference being that Hill mends his ways and Ladley doesn't, right up to the point where, and I I state this again, he is presumably beaten to death by an angry mob in North Haverbrook. (laughs) This and Hartman's eventual death are probably two good reasons why this perfectly reusable character hasn't come back, 
even in this era where seemingly every side character has had their own feature episode. And please, if anybody from The Simpsons staff is listening to this for some reason, don't do that. Please don't do that. Yeah, you're not going to get anyone who can sound anything like Phil Hartman. And that leads us to Leonard Niboy. Well, my work is done here. What do you mean your work is done? You didn't do anything. <laughs> didn't I? Oh, no, wait, I didn't. Right, OK, here we go. Leonard Simon Nimoy was born on March 26, 1931 in Boston, Massachusetts to Ukrainian Jewish immigrants. He began acting at age eight and pursued it against the wishes of his parents, but as per the encouragement of his grandfather. He studied the method acting concepts of Stanislavski, amongst others, and was an admirer of Marlon Brando, though his thoughts on Brando's role as John Trucosaurus have not been recorded. <laughs> After 18 months in the US Army's Special Services Division, which primarily provided entertainment to its own troops, ending in 1955, Nimoy started getting TV and film roles, apparently often as, and I quote, a heavy, despite his always slim figure. I suppose he was quite tall. He had a slew of minor and supporting roles running up to the mid-60s, where he suddenly became very busy. This included four appearances on Wagon Train, then the most watched show on American television, and particularly notable due to Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry's pitch of the show as being Wagon Train to the Stars. Nimoy also had a role as a Soviet menace in The Man from Uncle, crossing swords with an uncle recruit played by none other than William Shatner. <laughs> this also means, and stick with me on this one, it's a bit of a deep cut, this also means that Shatner may have wielded that series' most iconic prop, the Walther P-38 Uncle Special Gun. That's Megatron's alternate mode in the original Transformers cartoon. Keep this in mind for a super crossover in about four sentences time. Okay. Of course, his most remembered role, which is referenced repeatedly in this episode, is as Mr. Spock, not to be confused, although it often is, with Dr. Spock, in Star Trek. Mr. Spock was the science officer and de facto second-in-command to Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise's original five-year mission, as expressed in three seasons of live-action television, two seasons of animated television, and six films, plus an appearance in a two-episode arc of the sequel series Star Trek The Next Generation, and also some stuff in that alternate timeline film series that we don't speak of. Spock is the only character to have been kept from the pilot episode The Cage, which wasn't even broadcast until the late 1980s, and bizarrely, recently spawned the apparently brilliant series Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which I keep forgetting to watch. With most of the original cast and characters rebooted, the pointy-eared alien, or Vulcan, although actually in this case half-human on his mother's side, was kept on, although in a move which probably seemed odd at the time but has gone on to be an iconic character trait, Vulcans were given their tight emotional control after the first pilot, but before the start of the series. Star Trek was cancelled after three seasons, and unlike some of his peers, Nimoy didn't have trouble finding work, stepping straight into a regular role on Mission Impossible and easily ticking over until Star Trek came back in movie form. But it's worth noting he has always had an uneasy relationship with his signature character, as explored in his two autobiographies, I Am Not Spock and I Am Spock. <laughs> I am also Scotty, as referenced in Season 13, Episode 8, Sweets and Sour Marge, is not a real book, I'm afraid. On the plus side, he was able to use the threat of not appearing in the very lucrative movies to kick his writing and directing careers into high gear, directing Star Trek III The Search for Spock and Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, 
with story by credits on the latter and Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country. Between all that, he fitted in a voice role on Transformers the Movie, voicing Galvatron, the reborn version of Megatron. See? Paid off in the end. But more notably, he directed Three Men and a Baby, the highest grossing film of 1987 in the United States. What? Okay. And for timing reasons, I won't even mention his musical career, but perhaps when we get to his second appearance in The Simpsons, where he actually sings, that'll be a good time to revisit this. Nimoy died on February 27th, 2015, having tried to retire in 2010, but not really managed it, meaning he was basically active right up until his death. After appearing in this episode, he would come back for Season 8, Episode 10, The Springfield Files, and a posthumous tribute was also shown in Season 26, Episode 15, The Princess Guide. Are you ready for some Did You Knows? Oh, yeah, indeed. Lyle Ladley says he's put Ogdenville, North Haverbrook and Brockway on the map. But let's see if they're ever heard from again, eh? Let's deal with Brockway first, because, yeah, that they never mention that again. Uh, it, well, actually, it's never seen again, but they do mention it once in Season 22, Episode 3, Money Bart, where Bart's baseball team plays against a lot of other baseball teams from around the area. Uh, that's also where we hear North Haverbrook again. So, kind of uh, slim pickings for them. North Haverbrook actually is, uh, is referenced in Season 5, Episode 12, Bart Gets Famous, but it's, it's, it's just an incidental mention. Ogdenville, we have seen. So we'll first see it, or at least the outskirts of it, in Season 7, Episode 14, Scenes from the Class Struggle in Springfield, as the family get Marge's iconic Chanel suit from the Ogdenville Outlet Mall. Oh, yes, of course. And we see the whole thing in Season 20, Episode 21, Coming to Homerica. Described as the state that Springfield is in's barley basket, Ogdenville is revealed to have a population of Norwegian descent. And Moe's fiance Maya is also Ogdenvillian. When Mr. Burns appears in court, he is wearing a straitjacket and muzzle reminiscent of Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of Dr. Hannibal Lecter in the 1991 film The Silence of the Lambs. Probably an obvious one. Less obvious, Homer sings, I gave my love a chicken, it had no bones. That's taken from a traditional English folk song, referred to variously as the Riddle Song or I Gave My Love a Cherry, thought to date back to the 15th century. Mayor Quimby says, May the force be with you to Leonard Nimoy, <laughs> which is from Star Wars and all that, but Quimby also mistakes Nimoy for one of the little rascals, in reference to the colourful characters, filmed in black and white, from the 1920s to 1940s film series Our Gang. Whoever he was, he clearly wasn't the original Alfalfa, who was killed by Mo Sislak during the latter stint as Smelly, the tough kid, <laughs> as referenced in Season 7, Episode 2, Radioactive Man. Homer is also taping a television airing of the films in Season 7, Episode 17, Homer the Smithers. And finally, a mutated squirrel and the intervention of the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, will both go on to be very key parts of the plot of The Simpsons Movie. Tom, I, I get the feeling I need a quilt and a pillow for this one. <laughs> get yourselves comfortable. It's time for the memeable moments from Marge versus the monorail. Yeah, so I'm thinking it would be quicker to just go through the bits of the episode that aren't memes. But right off the bat, you've got number one. Simpson, Homer Simpson, he's the greatest guy in his story. From the town of Springfield, he's about to hit a chestnut tree. Well, I made my own version of that with uh, the current Labour leader, Keir Starmer. 
because uh, people are always having a go at me because I keep making memes which aren't particularly nice to Jeremy Corbyn, but I just make memes of whatever I think is funny. And there was a time when Keir Starmer uh, reversed into a cyclist and knocked them to the floor. They were fine, but I made it to Starmer, Keir Starmer, he's a Labour leader that you like. From the centre of Labour, he's about to knock a guy off his bike. <laughs> See, I see that one a lot because I'm in a I'm in a fantastic um, uh, motorsports meme group called Put It in MGUH. Um, oh yes. So pretty much any time somebody crashes, um, there's going to be a way of working that one into it. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two uh, is you'll go where I go, defile who I defile, eat who I eat. What I like is how they imagined virtual reality. In the in the future, you know, these big chunky helmets with huge wires coming off the back, and it's like if they could see an Oculus Rift. <laughs> <sighs> Number three, my name is Mister Snrub, and I come from someplace far away. Appears whenever you have someone who's trying to, you, you know, someone's just lost their job or something, and they just come back as the same person but with the name reversed. Have <laughs> uh, only got. Brockway, Ogdenville, North Haverbrook, by gamut, put them on the map. That's number four. Number five is the monorail song, Within It. Um, well, in fact, there's three Within It. So number six is, Is There a Chance the Track Could Bend? Number seven, the second time we've seen this phrase, The Ring Came Off My Pudding Can. Uh, I, I like the Metallica version, so I'm posted. And tonight, take my hand, the ring came off my pudding can. And then you've got Homer's uh, little misstep at the end. Mono, oh! Number nine, Truckosaurus. You crazy car, I don't know whether to kiss you or eat you. Uh, number ten, your boyhood dream was to run onto a baseball field and you did it last year. Idiot ruins game, Springfield form forfeits pennant. <laughs> In case you're not familiar with baseball terms, that's equivalent of losing the league. <laughs> Number 11, should we take our hidden camera? If you would, let's go, Phil. <laughs> I assume that camera had more than one day to go till retirement. <laughs> well, it didn't get smashed up, so probably not. Number 12, you can get mono from riding the monorail. I made probably the most niche meme I've ever made from that, because there's a post-rock band called Mono. <laughs> Uh, so I said, you can get mono from listening to mono. And I think one person got it. <laughs> uh, which which kind of suits the whole mono thing. Uh, it, it kind of, yeah. Number 13, do you want to change your name to Homer Junior? The kids can call you Hoju. <laughs> Two things with that. One, the Hoju is the third reserve of the Imperial Japanese Army. Or was, when, when it existed. And number two, as people will know, I'm a fan of Norwich City, and they once signed a player called Jordan Hugel. And his name said in a Norfolk accent is, um, well, the way I imagined it was the Norwich manager at the time, Daniel Farker, saying to him, do you want to play for Norwich? The fans can call you Hugel. <laughs> anyway, so then we've got number 14, mono means one and rail means rail. And it concludes our intensive three-week course. Number 15 is the file photo of Homer Simpson with his mouth stuffed full of cigarettes. Number 16, with the possums, and the possums look far too cute. Possums are really ugly bastards. 
But their one looks just far too Mickey Mouse. So anyway, number 16, I call the big one bitey. That is apparently Matt Groening's favourite joke in all of The Simpsons. Yes, yes, I heard that. Number 17, one I used just yesterday. Go away, there ain't no monorail, there never was. BBC News going, go away, there ain't no Brexit-related food shortage, and there never was. Number 18, he's cool, he's sexy, he's 34 years old. Oh, good lord. <laughs> what I wouldn't give to be 34 oh, years old. Yeah, I know. We're doing a bit better than he was, anyway. Number 19, what you been up to, Lorleen? I spent last night in a ditch. Number 20, I shouldn't have stopped that haircut, which was useful whenever someone got a haircut in lockdown and subsequently got a fine. Uh, number 21, Mayor Quimby saying, you don't scare me, that could be anyone's ass. Although I'm British, so I can't say ass, I have to say ass, but that completely changes the cadence of the word. Anyway, number 22, a solar eclipse, the cosmic ballet goes on. Number 23, is Krusty throwing himself out of the train and then Leonard Nimoy grabbing him and saying, no, the world needs laughter. Come back to that in a second. 24, Batman's a scientist, it's not Batman! Number 25, the sea captain going, Are you call that an anchor? And number 26, Leonard Nimoy going, Well, my work is done here. Then Barney, What do you mean your work is done? You didn't do anything. Didn't I? He did! <laughs> he did! He literally saves Krusty the Clown from killing himself! <laughs> he very much did do something! Oh, that has always annoyed me. And finally... Number 27 is the Escalator to Nowhere, which featured on a post in Tenuous and Obscure Simpsons just yesterday. They discovered a, a mall in America which had an escalator which just didn't go anywhere. So there we are, 27. I don't think that's going to be bad. <laughs> oh, good Lord. I mean, this is just the this is the era that we're in, you know. But uh, but but I would say that that's likely to be a high for a long time. Yeah, um, I think so. I think so. I'd like to see what uh, you only move twice has to say about that. But we'll, uh, <laughs> we've we've got four seasons to go until then, so you know, pl plenty of time. Plenty exactly. of time. So hit me with the best and most interesting history you could find for this particular week. Okay, um, so this is corporate stuff. This is all to do with IBM. Do you know what IBM stands for? Uh, I, oh, God, I'm going to get this wrong, aren't I? Is it, it, I, I always think it's International Business Machine. And it is. Oh, thank God for that. What, machines? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so they're a company that's been around for over a century, and many inventions that we take for granted today come from them. They were once the absolutely dominant force in information technology until their competitors gained ground. So yes, I'm talking about IT and data science, but don't worry, the Nazis are going to make an appearance. Now, I'm aware that this is a history podcast and not a technology one, so I'll try and skip over technical details. However, I don't mind admitting that I don't understand all of the tech, so I'll skip over that too. I'll let you decide which is which. On January the 19th, 1993, five days after Marge versus the monorail first aired, IBM posted an $8.1 billion loss. I'll explore the reasons for this loss later, but first, let's look at the origins of IBM. 
IBM spawned from several companies that were around in the 1880s, all having something to do with keeping an eye on workers. One of these companies was the Bundy Manufacturing Company, the first in the world to make time clocks. Now, that sounds a bit strange because surely every clock is a time clock. But, <laughs> but uh, anyway, if you've ever seen an old movie where tired, dishevelled factory workers file in to have cards punched by a machine, you've seen a time clock. So every employee has a card, they stick it in the machine, it gets punched, and that records when they've arrived for work. Then there was the tabulating machine company. They made machines that would process said punch cards. So that will, so they would report for the bosses on who's in when and whatever else. Then in 1901, the two companies were amalgamated by a man called George Winthrop Fairchild. Now he was an important character in the development of the exciting world of data processing. Not only was he the chairman of IBM until his death in 1924, he was also the father of Sherman Fairchild, the man whose company developed cameras for NASA to use on the moon. As well as this, he also founded Fairchild Semiconductor, one of the first businesses to set up in Silicon Valley. Best of all, he also founded Fairchild Camera and Instrument, manufacturer of the Fairchild Channel F games console. I thought I recognised that from gaming. Mmm. Ah, the Fairchild Channel F. It was released in 1976, and it was way ahead of its time. The best thing about it was the controllers. They were sticks that could be moved in all directions like a joystick, as well as being twisted and pushed up and down, giving close to 360-degree movement. Pretty cool, eh? Not bad for 1976. Anyway, back to the formation of IBM. In 1901, the Computing Scale Company of America was founded in Dayton, Ohio. In 1911, all of these companies were amalgamated into the Computer Tabulating Recording Company, or CTR, by a man named Charles Ranlett Flint. He was kind of the Richard Branson of his day. He'd already made a fortune by setting up rubber plantations in Brazil, the press dubbing him the Rubber King. He was also a keen sportsman, and at one time held the world water speed record. He also helped finance the Vigilant, the ship that won the 1893 America's Cup. At the time of CTR's founding, it was based in Endicott, New York, and had 1,300 employees. Their business was to manufacture and sell everything to do with timekeeping at work. Over time, the range of products expanded to include weighing scales, coffee grinders, and automatic meat slicers. But data was always their main focus. In 1914, Flint hired a former executive at the National Cash Register Company, a man by the name of Thomas J. Watson Sr., despite the fact that he had a jail sentence hanging over him. He had been convicted of breaking antitrust laws while at NCR and was sentenced to one year in prison. Fortunately for him, his conviction was overturned on appeal after his lawyer successfully argued that important evidence was not presented at the first trial. Watson was responsible for a big increase in sales and instilled company policies that salesmen today are known for. Things like smart suits, customer services and big bonuses. Under his leadership, revenues at CTR doubled and they opened offices across the globe. He introduced the slogan, Think, founded company sports teams, and insisted on holding company events like family picnics, which is probably where Mr Burns got the idea from. History does not recall whether he liked gelatin desserts or not. 
He also had what's known as an open door policy, where he told people that they could come directly to him or any of the executives directly if they had any grievances. If you've ever heard anyone say, my door is always open, then thank Watson because he started it. In 1924, Watson had grown tired of the name Computer Tabulating Recording Company, apparently not liking the hyphens. As the company was now truly international, he chose the now famous International Business Machines, or IBM for short. By 1924, the punch cards that were initially used for simple timekeeping had evolved into systems that were capable of basic arithmetic. IBM expanded into Japan and sold tabulators capable of arithmetic to Japanese companies, the first of which being the Nippon Pottery Company. Now, 1929 saw the stock market crash, and the early 30s was, of course, dominated by the Great Depression. It was during this time that Watson made a huge gamble. Instead of laying people off, he actually hired more staff. As well as this, he improved workers' lots by introducing a 40-hour work week in 1933 and company health insurance in 1934. In order to give these staff something to do, IBM continued to make tabulating machines, despite having next to no market to sell them to. The gamble, however, paid off. In 1935, as part of his New Deal, President Roosevelt introduced the Social Security Act, and 26 million Americans were eligible for it. IBM was the only company anywhere near being able to provide machines for this Herculean task, so they won a government contract that was hugely lucrative for them and all that former surplus inventory was put to good use. As we all know, the 30s saw the rise of fascism in Europe and the real threat of another world war. Watson believed that the way to avert war was through trade, even having the slogan, World Peace Through World Trade, put onto the company's New York office. In 1937, Watson Sr. attended a conference in Berlin where he was given the Merit Cross of the German Eagle with Star for services to international trade, one of the highest awards that the Nazis gave to foreigners. So when war broke out, you might be thinking, what did IBM do? Well, this is really controversial. In 2001, Edwin Black published the book IBM and the Holocaust, alleging that IBM profited from the Nazi regime. IBM had a 90% share in the company Dahomag, who provided the same tabulating services that IBM did in the States. After coming to power in 1933, the Nazis set about conducting a census so that they could see just how many Jewish people and other undesirables were in the Reich. Willy Heidinger, the chief executive of Dahomag, was a committed Nazi and had no problem with providing them with the technology that enabled them to catalogue their atrocious crimes during the Holocaust. You can't deny that IBM technology was used by the Nazis, but what's less clear is how much IBM themselves profited from it. So it's still a really controversial area. Believe it or not, IBM refocused their industrial output during the war and made weapons for the US military, including bomb sites for bombers and guns such as the M1 carbine. Meanwhile, IBM's punch card technology was extensively used by the Allies for documenting their war effort, including the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos. I mean, IBM's involvement in World War II blows my mind. To have your technology used in the Holocaust and the development of nuclear weapons. I mean, wow. <laughs> Following the war, IBM brought out its first product that incorporated electronic arithmetic circuits, the IBM 603. This used vacuum tubes to do the calculations. 
This was the predecessor to the IBM 701, the company's first commercial computer. They followed this up in 1952 by pioneering the tape drive vacuum column, becoming the first company to use magnetic tape for data storage. Thus, the 1950s sci-fi cliché of huge machines with massing whirring tape banks was born. 1956 saw huge change at IBM because Thomas J. Watson Sr., the man who had been at the helm of the company for more than 40 years, died. His son, imaginatively named Thomas J. Watson Jr., who was already president, became the new chief executive. Although he feared he couldn't live up to his father's legacy, he codified IBM's principles and in 1953 he wrote the company's first equal opportunities policy, more than a decade before the US Civil Rights Act. On the technology side, Watson Jr. took over at a time of great change. It was clear that the time of the punch card was coming to an end with the advent of computers and magnetic storage. On the international stage, the Cold War was heating up by the late 50s. Once again, the US government invested heavily in defence, with IBM contracted to work on the air defence system SAGE. During this time, they got access to labs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and they came up with some major innovations. These included magnetic core memory, where binary information could be stored in a magnetic core in the machine itself, rather than relying on punch cards. They also came up with integrated video displays, as well as the light gun. Believe it or not, long way from the NES sapper, but they did it. And the innovations just kept coming. They worked out how to transmit data over telephone lines. They nailed down the process of duplexing, that is having two machines talk to each other. More technologies they came up with to enable Sage to work included multiprocessing and distributed networks. Each computer in the Sage network cost $30 million and there were 56 of them. IBM had 7,000 people working on the project and to date it had the largest carbon footprint of any technology project. Although whether crypto is rivaling that, probably, who knows. In 1956, IBM came up with the world's first hard drive. It contained 52 magnetic disks. Each one was 24 inches in diameter and 6 millimeters thick. So it was roughly the size of the beer barrel. Despite this, do you know how much data it could store? I'm going to go with 8K. Or a bit larger than that, 3.75 megabits. Okay, okay. So in 1957, IBM tormented generations of computer science students by inventing the Fortran programming language. Although I do programming for a living, I had not even attempted to try and understand Fortran. It's just too difficult. However, the importance of Fortran cannot be underestimated, as it's still the language of choice for high-performance computing, climate modelling, fluid dynamics, that kind of thing. IBM kept innovating throughout the 1960s, and by then they'd become an integral part of NASA. They made the computer that went on the Gemini spacecraft, weighing an extremely portable 59 pounds. And Gemini was really important as the forerunners for the Apollo missions because it's where they developed techniques such as docking. So, you know, two spacecraft coming together in space and docking to each other and so you can transfer stuff. So then in 1966, IBM produced another game changer, Dynamic Random Access Memory, or DRAM. So this was memory that was independent of the core memory, and it could be changed around and installed as required, hugely increasing the amount of memory available to computers. 1969 was a huge year, and for more than one reason. 
IBM came up with the idea of unbundling. Nowadays, this is something we take for granted, but at the time, it was revolutionary. Back then, there wasn't really a distinction between hardware and software. It was assumed that if you bought a computer, you got the software with it. With unbundling, software became independent from hardware, and this launched the software industry that we know today. That year also saw IBM develop magnetic stripe technology, leading to the credit card industry. And of course, 1969 saw the first successful landing of a man on the moon, with IBM playing a pivotal role, although they didn't make the computer that was on the lunar lander, you know, the one that kept beeping at Neil Armstrong and he just ignored it. So the 70s saw a big challenge for IBM because in 1971, Watson Jr. had a heart attack and subsequently retired. Technology-wise, IBM re released the first relational database in 1970. Hooray! Yes. And in, uh, in 2023, Gareth Irons pays his bills with uh, <laughs> relational database work. Yep. I mean, they remain the backbone of database storage and web development to this day, although many will argue that they shouldn't. But had to get that in there. Boo! <laughs> in 1971, they released the first floppy disk. Now, data storage was truly portable, even if the first ones were eight inches. They were actually floppy, though, not like the three-and-a-half-inch ones that became a staple of nerds throughout the world in the 90s. This technology was found in the IBM 5100, their first portable computer, weighing an even more portable 50 pounds. In 1976, the first space shuttle, the Enterprise, came into service, and surprise, surprise, the flight computer and hardware was manufactured by IBM. Back on Earth, IBM released the first commercial laser printer in the same year. In 1979, they released a game changer for retailers, the Universal Product Code. More commonly known as a barcode, the technology allowed retailers to scan items through checkouts, heralding the familiar beep that persists to this day. I really don't want to say anything more about barcodes. In the late 70s, a new form of computer emerged, the microcomputer. A bit of a misnomer by today's standards, the microcomputer was small enough and just about cheap enough for individuals to own and run. Before then, the only available computers were mainframes, huge behemoths that were accessible to governments, universities, and the five richest kings of Europe. By 1977, Commodore had released the PET 2001-8, and Apple had brought out the Apple II. These ventures were proving profitable, and IBM fancied a slice. So they came up with the IBM personal computer, and the PC was born. But like all computers, the PC needed an operating system. As luck would have it, a lady by the name of Mary Maxwell Gates was on the board of directors of the national charity United Way, and she had connections to the board members at IBM. She happened to mention that her son ran a software company and that they could write the operating system. Her son's name, Bill. Bill Gates confessed to IBM that Microsoft hadn't made an operating system before, so he referred them to his friend Gary Keldall and his digital research company, as they had already made an operating system known as CPM. The story goes that Dorothy Kildall handled business negotiations on behalf of her husband Gary, but did not want to sign a non-disclosure agreement with IBM. And what happened next is really rather complicated. IBM grew impatient with Kildall, who apparently did not want to sell the rights to CPM for a one-off fee, fearing it would be a valuable asset for years to come. 
IBM turned to Gates and Microsoft once again, and Gates agreed to develop an operating system for them. Gates was happy to do it for a one-off fee. Microsoft bought the rights to the disk operating system, otherwise known as DOS, from a company called Seattle Computers for a mere $50,000. They tailored it for the IBM PC, and IBM PC DOS was born. Bill Gates then applied a stroke of genius. He wanted the rights to develop DOS for other manufacturers. This is where IBM's pride got the better of them. They thought, well, what other manufacturers? Who could be bigger than us? In addition, IBM had been dogged by antitrust investigations for decades, and they thought that giving up exclusivity would get the feds off their back. So IBM PC-DOS became Microsoft, or MS-DOS. This move meant that Bill Gates and Microsoft could license MS-DOS to anyone they wanted to, and it soon became the dominant operating system. After that came Windows, Bill Gates became the billionaire computer nerd, and the rest is history. But what of Gary Kildall, the man who turned IBM down? Well, despite business ventures that resulted in the first encyclopedia on CD-ROM and the logo programming language, Gary Kildall spent the rest of his life metaphorically hanging from the basement ceiling while batting a light bulb, cursing the fact that he'd let IBM get away. He came to a tragic end in 1994 when he sustained fatal head injuries in a California biker bar. Exactly how he got them is still kind of a mystery. Anyway, back to the main story. IBM, by this point, was in unfamiliar territory. Before, they monopolised pretty much anything they had made their business. Now, they had competition. In the early 1980s, their major attempt at a low-ish cost home computer was the IBM PC Junior. It retailed for $1,200, about $3,300 today, but that was without the monitor. If you wanted to actually see something, you had to pay extra. So the PC Junior was more expensive than its competitors before you'd even bought any software. On the commercial side, IBM missed the 1983 Christmas season due to production delays, and the machine wasn't available until March 1984. It did have some neat innovations, including cartridges that would automatically reset the machine when inserted. On the downside, users hated the chiclet keyboard as it had cheap little plastic buttons instead of proper keys, making typing nearly impossible. IBM was used to selling to businesses and not the home consumer. The PC Junior was so unpopular that it was discontinued in March 1985, a year after it was released. By this time, it was clear that IBM was in trouble in the emerging PC market. With the OS it was using available to its competitors, pretty much anyone could make a computer and sell it. IBM no longer had a USP when it came to home computers. By the late 80s, IBM had also failed to anticipate another revolution in computing, the client-server model. In this way of working, several small computers would be able to communicate with the larger one in a LAN, or local area network. The idea was that small computers, the clients, are not very powerful but cheap, and the larger computer, the server, could connect to all of them and talk to them. So the clients instructed the server and got it to do work for them. This is in stark contrast to the mainframe model that IBM was still trying to plug. So by the early 90s, IBM was a dinosaur. Its foray into the world of microcomputers had failed, it had completely missed the client-server revolution, but it was still operating the same scale research and development that it had always done. The maths just didn't add up, and on the 19th of January 1993, 
five days after Marge versus the monorail first aired, IBM posted a loss of $8.1 billion for the 1992 financial year, the largest single corporate loss in US history. This was even after taking the ThinkPad into consideration, IBM's attempt at a laptop that was actually pretty popular. Since then, IBM has recovered somewhat, but it ventured no further into tech trends. That's why there's no IBM smartphone or IBM smartwatch, for example. The company returned to profit in 1994, focusing on large-scale operations, research, and supercomputers. 1996 saw the famous Deep Blue vs. Garry Kasparov chess match, where an IBM supercomputer was matched up against a world chess champion. The first time they met was in the week of February the 10th, and Kasparov won 4-2. This was significant because it was the first time the computer had ever beaten a grandmaster in a game of chess. They would meet again in May 1997, and this time Deep Blue won 3.5 to 2.5, the first time a computer had ever beaten a grandmaster in a complete match. Needless to say, the encounter was not without its controversies, but I'll leave that for another time. In 2005, IBM left the personal computer market altogether when its PC division, including ThinkPads, was sold to the Chinese manufacturer Lenovo. IBM is still very much active. As recently as 2019, it purchased the open source software company Red Hat for a whopping $34 billion. So obviously plans to be around for some years yet. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I had no idea IBM invented everything. Yeah, pretty much. It, it's like a list of stuff IBM has invented. And you, you just go, oh, they did that and that and that and that. And it just kept going. Was it Ross Perot that we discussed as well, who invented a surprisingly large amount of things? Yes. Yes, he did. He, 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 also to do with uh, computers and data storage, yeah. Yeah. Madness. Well, of course, that leaves me with the challenge of finding... Um, Finding something IBM related in The Simpsons, and I already know what Tom's going to be thinking of, and yes, it's in there. But um, firstly, to say there's an IBM creation that uh, appears in The Simpsons. It is IBM's Watson computer, which listeners may or may not remember from its run on the US game show Jeopardy in 2011. To capitalise on its moment in the pop culture sun, The Simpsons featured it in an episode in 2019. (laughs) That episode being season 30, episode 21, Doe Canada. Really striking while the iron is hot there, as always. And of course we mentioned Bill Gates, who also appears, voiced by Hank Azaria, after they apparently considered asking him to play himself, but did not. He appears most famously in The Simpsons in season 9, episode 14, Das Bus, where he buys out CompuGlobal HyperMegaNet by having hired goons smash up The Simpsons' living room. <laughs> Gates appears again in season 22, episode 2, Lona Lisa, where Nelson becomes an entrepreneur. I haven't seen that one for a while, I'm just going to assume it's garbage. <laughs> so, ending on garbage. Oh, some brilliant segues this week, wasn't it? But, um, <laughs> don't forget you can find us at retrospectacus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can email us at podcast.retrospectacus.org and we do have a 90s playlist on Spotify, but I've just realised... We don't really link to it from anywhere, and I'm not sure if anyone remembers where it is. So we'll work on that. <laughs> we'll work on that at some stage. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye.